Good morning and good morning. On this, another day we've been given to make it better. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall, and we are going to be discussing once again the race for Manhattan District Attorney, and today we'll have with us Dan Court. But before that takes place, I want us to focus on another development that took place in the Derek Chauvin case or the murder of George Floyd um, and the involvement of the other three officers who stood by and watched it happen. There were federal indictments. An indictment takes place when a grand jury is convened and the prosecutor then sets forward the evidence. The prosecutor and witnesses, the judge and the grand jury members, are the ones in the room. The defense counsel is not allowed in the room, and that's why so many people say, and the saying goes, that a prosecutor could indict a ham sandwich because it's only the prosecutor's information that the grand jury gets to hear. And then the grand jury decides whether or not there is enough evidence for charges to be brought against that particular suspect or person. Those um, processes are secret. The whole grand jury process is secret. The grand jurors are sworn to secrecy. And it was set out that way so that a person wouldn't be tried in the public before they're tried, if they are to be tried in a criminal court. We have state prosecutors and we have federal prosecutors. There are far more state prosecutors than federal prosecutors. Uh, in this process that we have, and you find it under the Fifth Amendment, you'll see when you read it, it refers to the grand jury system. And so also our federal prosecutors within the Department of Justice have something of a power they were given after the Civil War. When the Civil War ended, and slavery ended with the 13th Amendment, the enslavement of people of color. And it, slavery ended, but also um, the indenturement. And we don't talk about that as much, but the 13th Amendment says there would be slavery abolished as well as indenturement. Indenturement was the type of system used quite often um, for poor whites. And these poor whites would work under a contract of indenturement. This is a contract of labor where they were not paid. White slavery is what it was referred to. And so 13th Amendment abolished slavery as well as um, indenturement. And then 14th Amendment gave citizenship at birth, privileges and immunities, equal protection, due process. Um, in 1870, the 15th Amendment gave black men the right to vote. The federal government realized as soon as all of this had taken place that the states were not going to uphold the rights of African Americans. They knew that they could not find justice in state courts. And so immediately upon the end of the Civil War and the enactment of these rights under the 13th, 14th, and the 15th Amendments and these protections, the federal government created civil rights legislation. So when we refer to civil rights cases, they were created, enacted by Congress after the Civil War. And when we look at the legal history of this country, and you can read about it in my book, Race, Law, and American Society, 1607 to Present. In my book, Race, Law, and American Society, and in any of these books written during this time period, that they, they, about this time period, but not during the time period, because they were very much in denial and in a system of, of 
diabolical lies uh, regarding African Americans during the back then during this time period what we need to understand is that they created civil rights protections that the federal prosecutors and others in the federal government had been given certain powers and as we go on into our legal history we begin to see that they had the power to protect African Americans in particular and then all people generally if they were being the target of prosecution or failure to prosecute they were the targets or the failure to prosecute in certain cases involving African Americans and it could be um, issues involving um, contracts for example in which they would have these horrible contracts they were forcing African Americans to sign or are not allowing African Americans to to buy property and buying property is of course under a, a deed lease and all of those are contracts there were so many civil rights protections put in place post Civil War so the fact that our federal government has failed over generations to use some of these powers leads us to believe that when they began to use them during the time period of the civil rights movement of 1960s and the 70s and then we see these referrals to these civil rights cases you probably believed that much of this was created in the 1960s now we did have the 1964 Civil Rights Act and that was something that was very keen in, in protecting people against discrimination based on race and gender religion um, national origin of course and and of course gender and then the 1965 Voting Rights Act and 1968 Fair Housing Act all of these national reforms passed by Congress but I think people did not really understand and even to this day don't understand the fact that this civil rights legislation began a hundred years before that and our federal government failed to act in so many ways to protect the rights of African Americans against police violence but also to act when the states refused to and for most of this country's history the states have turned their backs state prosecutors have turned their backs on the crushing oppression that African Americans have lived under with violence by police officers and by civilians so what we have in this indictment several indictments returned by the federal government grand jury in the Derek Chauvin case in the case involving the other um, officers is something that prosecutors federal prosecutors had the entire time so I want to just share with you and you can find it as well the Department of Justice's um, website has a press release and I quote a federal grand jury in Minneapolis Minnesota returned two indictments that were unsealed the first indictment charges former Minneapolis Police Department officers Derek Chauvin 45 Tao 2 35 J Alexander Kung 27 and Thomas Lane 38 with federal civil rights crimes for their roles in the death of George Perry Floyd jr. the three count indictment alleges that all four defendants while acting under color of law willfully deprived mr. Floyd of his constitutional rights in violation of title 18 United States Code section 242 
Specifically, count one of the indictment alleges that on May 25, 2020, Chauvin held his knee across Mr. Floyd's neck and his right knee on Floyd's back arm as George Floyd lay on the ground handcuffed and unresisting and kept his knees on Mr. Floyd's neck and body even after Mr. Floyd became unresponsive. The indictment alleges that Chauvin's actions violated Mr. Floyd's constitutional right to be free from the use of unreasonable force by a police officer and resulted in bodily injury to and the death of Mr. Floyd. You can go on and continue to read what is being um, charged here, but what you need to understand that will make it clearer for you, under the standard for bringing an indictment against a, a, uh, an officer, you have to find that the officer acted under color of law, meaning they were in their job as a, a member of the police department or some other area of law enforcement when they did this um, action that is found to be criminal or, or, or alleged to be criminal. You have to find they acted under color of law. Then you have to find that they did so willfully. Now, this willful standard is a very high standard to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, but it can be proved. But as I've noted other times, prosecutors decide, well, I don't think we have enough evidence to prove that it was willful, meaning there was an intent to do it. And this should be left to the grand jury to decide, not for federal prosecutors to decide in advance that their grand jury is not going to find the requisite amount of evidence is there to sustain charges. This is the breakdown that we have. The unwillingness of the federal prosecutors to put the evidence before the grand jury. And also, they don't have just one bite at the grand jury apple. Prosecutors, federal as well as state prosecutors, can bring evidence before a grand jury as often as they need to. If they find new developments, if they get a different strategy, then they can present this evidence to the grand jury. And they can do this. It's not the same as a trial where there's a double jeopardy component. There is no double jeopardy component when it comes to the grand jury. It is whether or not the federal grand, federal uh, prosecutors or the state prosecutors have the backbone and courage to actually seek an indictment, seek an indictment, to go before the grand jury with their evidence and not as these neutral parties, which of course is, is such a, I'll, I'll call it blasphemy, to the whole idea of being a prosecutor. A prosecutor is not a neutral party. And whenever you hear any prosecutor, especially in a police case, and this is when this is the only time you hear it is in a police case when they say this, that a prosecutor says, well, we're being neutral and we're just going to present all the evidence to the grand jury and they can make up their own minds that is hogwash to the nth degree that is basically a signal that i don't want to do this but i'm being pushed into it so therefore i'm just going to throw everything against the wall and and have these helpless jurors pick through non-attorneys pick through what's in there and then they can make up their own mind that's what happened in the michael brown case that's what happened in, in many instances in other cases when they Dain from their positions of absolute immunity, even provide evidence to a grand jury. 
And we saw in the Breonna Taylor case that that special prosecutor lied and, and, and pretended as though the grand jury had determined that there was not enough evidence. These things are happening all around us. And I understand that this is a law and order time when we're looking at how we're going to press forward in this this city, this region, this country when it comes to um, dealing with crime. I'm not ignoring crime. I'm not putting blinders on. What I'm trying to do is put some type of perspective on how crime works, prosecution works, how all these things work to not just undermine our society, but also focus on particular people and look at them as criminals and allow people who are in law enforcement to deal with so-called criminals in ways in which you would not have them deal with other people who are people who are troubled or having a bad moment in their life as opposed to some people who are considered innate criminals from birth. So... I want us to go forward and I want us to continue our conversation about what is necessary in our criminal justice system that, of course, we know was born in slavery and militias created to put down Native American uprisings and protect certain white elites from people of color, the brutes as they've been referred to in the, the documentary film, Exterminate All the Brutes. I want us to um, think about how we balance these things out in a system that has not ever been given the full light of day to look at how deeply um, the roots go as far as um, racism is concerned. We want to move forward and speak with um, Dan Court, a candidate for DA, Manhattan DA. I think these are crucial, crucial races that we need to understand in our political system. And we'll be right back after this. And on the other side, um, we'll be talking with Dan Court. morning. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Gloria, for having me. Great, great. I can hear you a little better if you turn up the sound. But I would like to say, starting off, this race for 
district attorney of Manhattan is one that I feel is very crucially important for our understanding, not just of, of politics in general, but in particular, the role of the prosecutor. And I would like to first start off with you being able to give us some insights into why you want this job. Well, for two re well, Gloria, thank you for having me. Um, there's two reasons why I'm running. One, a continuation of a life's work spent in the community as a as a pro bono attorney. I was representing tenants in housing court uh, as a civil litigator and a criminal defense attorney representing people in Manhattan criminal court for three plus years who can't afford representation. But equally, maybe more important, my 10 years in the legislature, not just talking about reform, actually achieving results for real people on uh, criminal justice reform. And secondly, and maybe most significantly, is that this office is in dire need of reform. It's crying out for a change, not only in leadership, but in policy. And uh, I look forward to talking with uh, uh, the listeners about how I'm going to achieve that reform. But that's ultimately why I'm running, is because the office is not functioning as it should. It, we can achieve both public safety and criminal justice reform, and it's not, and it hasn't been uh, a vessel for those changes uh, over the last 11 years under Mr. Vance. So when I'm looking at your your bio um, and you defended tenants' rights in public lands as a pro bono attorney, for whom were you working? Were you in your own office or were you working with a, a law firm? Um, I was on my own. Um, first, in 2003, I was awarded as one of the top uh, pro bono attorneys for the city of New York when I was of counsel to the Legal Aid Society Civil Division. Um, after that, I represented one of the largest NYCHA complex, uh, housing complexes on Roosevelt Island. It was called Eastwood back then, and I did that on my own. And lastly, uh, from about 2006 or seven, even after I was elected to the legislature, I partnered with Eviction Intervention Services on 64th Street, where I myself, uh, with some practicing attorneys, um, did volunteer work uh, on behalf and for tenants, but even broader than tenants. Uh, basically, anyone with a legal problem would come to us, and we would try and help them. And why now go to the side of the prosecutor? Um, because there are limits to what I can accomplish in the legislature. I can do so much more for my constituents and the rest of Manhattan um, as the chief law enforcement officer of the county, both on public safety and as significantly on police accountability and criminal justice reform and uh, reallocation of resources for many of uh, the, the, that which is prosecuted by this office, which ought not to be, to then use those res resources to go after real criminal conduct like sexual assault and, and, and rape, um, cybersecurity-based crimes, and, of course, white-collar criminal conduct. Um, I would like, and, and I, I want my listeners to, if you have a chance, go to the Manhattan DA's website. And it's an amazing um, array of areas that this, the Manhattan DA controls. I would say the Manhattan DA's office is the prime um, DA's office if we're talking about cities across the country. Um, and so it sets up the pace. It sends a message to the rest of the country. So it's a very important symbolic office as well for other prosecutors around the country. Uh, what type of supervisory experience do you have since you're going to have all these areas under you and all of these people? Well, uh, on a multiple levels, um, I, I've done things uh, that I think would be significant in 
demonstrating that I can lead this office. I've been a partner at multiple law firms. I've been responsible for the work product uh, of associates. Um, at the same time, uh, I was a legislator and built uh, coalitions in state government to pass significant criminal legal reform, running uh, a state legislative office, um, and at the same time representing people in Manhattan criminal court. So uh, I've clearly demonstrated uh, that I'm able to multitask, that I'm able to take on difficult and complex issues and execute on a vision reform. It's not enough to be different than Vance, uh, the incumbent. It's not enough to espouse the rhetoric of reform. I think what uh, Manhattanites are looking for in their next DA is someone who can operationalize on a vision, someone who can execute uh, on the words of a campaign and to action that makes us all safer um, and achieves that much-needed criminal justice reform and police accountability. Um, I have a track record which should demonstrate to all voters that I could accomplish that. And let's just turn for a moment on the national stage. Um, we know um, about the murder of George Floyd on May 25th, 2020. And from that, um, what has been kind of cobbled together is national criminal justice reform. Do you have a, a stance on national criminal justice reform? And um, have you had a chance to look at this proposed legislation and give us a viewpoint on its strengths and weaknesses? Um, on the federal legislation, obviously, that would be significant. But I think more specifically, and um, what what happened uh, after the tragedy of George Floyd's killing um, was uh, legislative reforms at the state level and things that I and was so directly impacting people in Manhattan and New York City. And that was the repeal of the police secrecy laws that I and others and advocates had been fighting for for years. Uh, sadly, it took uh, the murder of George Floyd for us to be able to come to overcome those regressive voices in the legislature that had held up that reform. But I have a long history, not just on the police secrecy laws, but working previously with then public advocate Tish James on making sure dashboard cam and body cam footage could not be considered uh, under the police secrecy law. So that had to become a transparent point and open to the public view. Um, at least we then got the prior police commissioner O'Neill to agree to that. So um, these were things that I accomplished and that we accomplished at the state level. Um, tragically, the ultimate resolution of repealing 58 took place um, only after George Floyd's death. But there was work for years by legislators like myself, advocates and lawyer, public defender, public defender lawyers that went into finally passing that legislation at the state level. Well, I'm going to circle back to the national legislation, but I want to give you a chance to tell us more about the police secrecy laws and 50A. Of course. Um, police secrecy laws go back to uh, clearly a misnamed law, 1976 Civil Rights Law, Section 50A, which has been distorted, had, had been distorted by case law, um, over the years to basically allow the police, the NYPD, and uh, to shield misconduct records. So, for example, um, with, uh, situ uh, with uh, an officer, uh, officer, we'll take Officer Garcia at uh, the precinct on the Lower East Side who put his knee into the upper shoulder and neck of Donnie Wright on May 9th. Um, he had a long history of police misconduct. Um, but before 50A, nobody, when 50A was still in application, nobody would know about it. Um, that changed under 50A, and now uh, these misconduct records have to be 
uh, made public. Why that matters is not just about transparency, but as district attorney, um, I would take a position of disclosing these records and officers that have um, misconduct records or even instances in their prior history of uh, inability to tell the truth. Um, these are things that I've pushed the current district attorney and all district attorneys to disclose. And that's what I would operationalize as district attorney, um, that these things are relevant um, and probative to not just litigation, but um, the police serving in a specific precinct. Um, people in the community have a right to know, not for purposes of vigilantism or anything like that against police officers. We can protect against that. Um, but since the police department has done such a poor job of overseeing its own with respect to misconduct, the district attorney, or certainly myself as district attorney, would have a large role to play in making sure that information became public. Is that a policy you would like to see in national legislation? I, I think so. Um, it's hard. A, it's, a, a difficult, it's a difficult thing to mandate at the federal level that district attorneys across 3,200 counties in this country um, are forced to do that, but there are ways through federal federal legislation and money uh, to incentivize those sort of practices by all district attorneys' offices, and that would go a long way to restoring or repairing the relationship between police precincts and the communities they serve um, by being open and transparent uh, about the officers that are supposed to serve us. So, as I promised, I circle back to national um, criminal justice reform, and I refer to the fact that we've been able to make the progress we've made uh, in employment, in voting, in housing, in education, et cetera, based on national reform, i.e., the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 65, the Fair Housing Act of 68, from which you are very familiar. So where do you stand on national criminal justice reform? Well, I, I, it, it is critical, um, and all the important pieces of legislation that were part of the Great Society and came out uh, during the 1960s uh, was critical. A Voting Rights Act being most specific, we're seeing, I know it's, uh, we're talking about the DA's office and criminal legal reform, but voting is so critical. And if I could take a moment, um, um, the role we've played in the state legislature on passing early voting and uh, constitutional changes that allow for, quote unquote, no excuse absentee ballot. Um, these are critical changes we did at the state level and I supported and pushed for. Um, the, the federal government is far behind in taking greater control of its federal elections. Um, essentially, we have 50 state elections um, with the lack of any basic uniformity, and that's what the federal legislation, I think, would change. Um, that That is a civil right in and of itself. And while not within my purview, if I'm to be the DA, something personally important to me is something I've fought for in Albany for the last 10 years. We're speaking with Dan Cord, candidate for district attorney of Manhattan, and I am going to press on this issue of national criminal justice reform. And the reason why is something you've said. If there are 3,200 counties, there are 18,000 um, police jurisdictions, how are we to piecemeal, uh, cobble together something that could meet the needs of the people when it comes to protecting them against the failure of prosecutors to prosecute or the police officers who um, are acting as, as in, in rogue ways or 
are not protecting the rights of people. So where do you stand on this George Floyd justice in policing bill? Well, of course, I, I fully support it. And it's critical at the federal le- level to incentivize better practices by municipalities and localities um, that um, we see across the country, uh, different police departments, which essentially have to should be under federal monitors. And that's where the DOJ uh, uh, w- w- would be involved in overseeing different departments. And that's happened in New York previously. So I do support that on criminal and on criminal justice issues. Uh, but I also think it's important to note that um, the, the, the federal 86, I think the number is 85 or 86 percent of prosecutions in general are at the state level, the local level. So while it's important for that 15 percent and for our federal government to stand for our basic values of, uh, of police accountability, and that prosecutors change their practices at the state level, ultimately the majority of cases uh, are resolved at the state level by state district attorneys or by local county district attorneys. And that's why I want to leave the legislature to run for Manhattan DA uh, to bring about that reform um, that's intended by the George Floyd Act and to institute that in Manhattan um, and not wait for federal legislation to pass to do that, to do that on my own. And I have as we've talked about, I think, from my experience in the legislature and in the courtroom of the eight candidates running, I think I'm the right person to, and that will be able to actually execute on these ideas of reform. Well, let's bring it back to home then. When we're talking about um, certain um, instances, and, and these instances in, in our, our local community have given rise to national attention, um, in Brooklyn, for example, Charles Hines um, was disgraced in the end of his career as, as DA there because of abuses that were seen in his office that resulted in 20 exonerations afterwards. We see this rise in Kenneth Thompson, who took um, the, the place of first black um, DA in Brooklyn, who then died, unfortunately, and there are reforms that he put in place that are there today. Um, if you're looking at reforming, is this reform for the prosecutor's office relationship with the police department? Are these reforms within the prosecutor's office as far as their their d- d- denial and of their jobs, basically, when there are certain times when they should be bringing actions against police officers? What reforms do you see? And it doesn't have to be specific to the letter that you see would be different when it comes to um, the, the trust that's been Uh, Of course, uh, I won't say irrevocably changed, but the trust that's lacking between the public, especially people of color, and the prosecutor's office, because there have been so many failures in the past where prosecutors who, when there's a police officer um, in a police-involved civilian incident, um, failing to bring charges against the officers. Well, there are many, very important question, and there are many facets to your question, um, both what you can do within the office, and then one part of being district attorney is using the bully pulpit of that office to speak out when you think, when you see things that are unjust, um, and, and I intend to use that. Um, not every issue I've tackled as a legislature relates to my work in Albany. It's about things that I see and hear that are unjust, and I have a record of speaking out about that. Um, 
but specifically, what can the office do? Um, it's a couple of things. One, a conviction integrity unit that functions. Um, you gave the example in Brooklyn, uh, was specific to one officer, Scarcella, but it was uh, spread across the, the Brooklyn DA's office. Unfortunately, it was a lost lack of trust um, that resulted from from people in Brooklyn uh, to its DA's office because of those unjust convictions. And I'm proud of the support that I have from uh, those uh, many individuals and organizations and non-for-profit or, or individuals from non-for-profits that work in conviction integrity work. Um, a lot of that has to go uh, towards uh, aggressive prosecutorial practices as well as uh, not providing basic discovery to the defendants, as well as basic coercion. And that's one of my arguments in this race is that there are five prosecutors to choose from, but they're all one way or another ensconced in that culture of winning um, and that a conviction is ultimately the measure of success. And I don't believe that. Um, of course, where we prosecute, we would like convictions. But the main goal and focus of the office is achieving justice. And a conviction does not always equate with justice and will change the mindset of the office, change the culture, and change the recruiting patterns of uh, who we bring into the office as younger assistant district attorneys. With respect to the facet of your question dealing with the police, um, my job is police accountability. Police accountability is public safety. Um, before the pandemic, I was canvassing in different neighborhoods in Manhattan for close to six months and have since the end of the petition period in Manhattan, and you hear it everywhere. It's not that the um, especially in places like Washington Heights, where I grew up, or East Harlem, where I'm often uh, knocking on doors and meeting with voters. Um, it's not that they don't want police in their neighborhood. They do, but they want a different type of policing. They want policing with respect and decency and treating them as neighbors, not as openly hostile individuals. Um, and, and so that's what I'll be demanding as a district attorney. Um, it's a dual job to work with the police to make cases. That's true. Um, but my responsibility is to hold officers accountable who engage in excessive force or violence on the street or who lie uh, on a police report or something like that. So um, that's how I see the issues. Um, and uh, what I would do as district attorney. How would you hold prosecutors accountable? One will use metrics, uh, will come up with measures to determine if, if they're, they're doing their job well. But um, it won't be based upon conviction rates, uh, I can tell you that. Um, this, all, this idea of win at all costs has led to bad practices uh, in many DA's offices where winning is everything. Um, so we'll change the concept of really operationalizing, seeking justice, um, and hone that in and change the culture. Also, uh, we'll have to be honest that... Um, that we'll have to recruit differently, that there'll be major changes at the Manhattan DA's office I'm elected. It won't just be a change in the six, eight, ten people of the leadership team. Um, you have to recognize that there has to be deeper changes in personnel at the bureau chief and assistant bureau chief level, possibly, and as well as recruit differently and bring in new types of assistant district attorneys, as I've outlined in my campaign and how I would do that, achieving both diversity and excellence at the same time, but really focusing on bringing in young people from New York City who grew up in New York City who may have a better understanding of the person on the opposite side of the courtroom. Um, and I, I think that's how I can achieve a, a better office and a better, a better level of justice in Manhattan. 
We're talking with Dan Court, candidate for district attorney of Manhattan. Just a few more minutes left in this um, interview. Um, but two things. Um, when it came to the Eric Garner case, there were many people who looked at this from a standpoint of the prosecutorial discretion um, in determining that these officers, and this particular officer um, who uh, is highlighted here, did not deserve to go to trial. And the the issue was whether or not they would be charged or prosecuted at all. The officer in the case or those around who did nothing. We're dealing with a very similar situation, of course, in George Floyd, where we have an officer acting and other officers standing by, allowing that officer to act. In the in the Eric Garner case, is there something you would have done differently? Certainly so. Um, as far as I know, then district uh, Attorney Donovan uh, only brought the highest charge possible, murder one. And uh, I, I never like to judge anyone's motivations, but I, I think many of us uh, can understand uh, why he did so without offering murder two or lower charges, uh, manslaughter. Um, and not surprisingly, the grand jury did not come back with an indictment on murder one because that has to show a true intent um, rather than a reckless disregard. Um, so I would have brought lower charges uh, I've been I've said that since the beginning that uh, the charges brought by then Staten Island District Attorney were certainly not consistent with the facts that should have been presented to the grand jury, um, and uh, you know that that was wrong. Whatever Mr. Donovan's motivations were, ultimately justice, in my view, wasn't served, um, and that this is a case that wouldn't should have gone before a jury, and it never did, and uh, that was a mistake. And he had an opportunity, of course, to, as we've talked about in this program, uh, there's just not one bite at the grand jury apple. You can get, keep taking evidence to the grand jury um, until you get that indictment. Um, I, I want to just end, end with this uh, question, if you don't mind. Well, actually, two questions. Where do you stand yeah. on absolute immunity? No, I, I think we, we need to eliminate qualified immunity. How about um, absolute immunity? When we talk about, I want to put more focus on the prosecutor's office because we focus on what the police do. But even if we have laws, and we do have laws that are supposed to restrict police actions, but if the prosecutors don't prosecute, those laws don't matter. So I want more of the attention to be placed on what the DA's office would do with prosecutors and the power prosecutors have, is there any limit you would put on the power of the prosecutors and absolute immunity is what they have right now. And what is your stand on absolute immunity? The police officers have qualified immunity. Prosecutors have absolute immunity. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I, I look, that, that, that's worthy of, of looking at. Certainly when we're talking about Brady violations, um, clear cut instances where prosecutors intentionally fail to disclose exculpable evidence leading to somebody's conviction. Um, I think under certain circumstances, ending that absolute immunity makes sense. But I'd have to look at the legislation before I could specifically say this piece of legislation makes sense. Um, you know, someone who's uh, written bills for 10 years um, have to make sure the language of any legislation matches our intent. But I gave you an example uh, of where uh, I think there's a, a huge hole where a prosecutor's action was not just reckless, but deprived somebody of their liberty. Um, that's something that they should not be immunized for. And so what should happen to them? 
Well, start with, uh, I would fire them. Secondly, they should go before the Bar Association and for consideration of um, being disbarred. That's not my call. That's uh, the Bar Association's determination. And then we'd look at whether civil penalties certainly would apply, um, could apply, and, and then it would be my idea, it would be my obligation um, if we ended, if we executed upon legislation that ended absolute immunity, whether to prosecute or not, for perjury, certainly, or something along those lines. And but now, those please. Are the, those are the different avenues to respond to the problem of district attorneys who willfully fail to disclose exculpatory evidence. Yes, and and even to the point of corrupt prosecutors, and and that's just, we can have corrupt plumbers, we can have corrupt doctors, so we could have corrupt prosecutors as well. And there has to be more of a of some type of policy put in place. It was assumed to be um, that to deal with those corrupt prosecutors who could, um, through their actions or inactions, um, lead to the incarceration of people um, unfairly. Those people losing their their time of their lives, losing their families, their jobs, um, and then what happens to the prosecutors? And that's the question that many of my listeners have put to me to ask. It's like, what should happen to corrupt prosecutors? And that's why I press you on that point. I'm glad you did press me. It's, a, it's an important issue. And also for the fact that, as you well know, um, the overwhelming majority of those who are wrongfully convicted um, – are people of color, and um, I'm sure to your listeners, they're not surprised at that fact, but that is a fact, and uh, we're talking about all sorts of practices within law enforcement, and that includes the district attorney's office that has a disproportionately negative impact on people of color, and that's what I've been fighting against my whole career in the legislature. Um, in 25 years in the legislature, I think since they started keeping records, um there have been only two pieces of legislation that have repealed any section of the penal law. I wrote both of them. Um, and these were sections of the law that were used as a wedge against communities of color, specifically in Manhattan, East Harlem, um, and elsewhere. So um, I'm proud of my record, and I think it should show to your listeners uh, the, the focus I will bring to the district attorney's office in making sure we don't exacerbate um, those law enforcement practices that already hurt communities and people of color throughout Manhattan. Well, then this would be a great opportunity for you to tell the listeners why they should vote for you. Um, I think one one reason, uh, one reason uh, not alone, but one reason most significantly that distinguishes me from the other seven people running is my record of actual accomplishment, my record of decarceration, my record of criminal justice reform um, in the legislature. Um, Everyone can talk about what they would do as DA. They can put up their plans on their websites, as I have. And that is important that people have thought about what they would do. But nobody has my actual record of accomplishment, of taking difficult problems and solving them. And uh, one specific issue that I fought for seven years in Albany, um, the specifics are not important right now, um, but it led to the fact that 3,800 to 4,000 people um, and 70, 80 percent of those people of color will never see the inside of a police precinct or a courtroom because of my efforts work, working with criminal justice advocates and legal aid lawyers. Um, that's what I can bring to a district attorney. There's no guesswork with me. Um, I've been doing this work and doing it successfully for 10 years under difficult circumstances. That's the type of DA I will be. 
Thank you so much, Dan Court, candidate for district attorney of Manhattan. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Conversation with our candidates for Manhattan DA will continue um, into the next month as we begin to uh, get closer to the primary. Um, as I leave you, I want to remind you that I do have a new book out, She Took Justice. That's my most recent book, She Took Justice, The Black Woman, Law and Power, as well as my plays, and thank you for um, supporting me in my work as a playwright, are available online. Dreams of Emmett Till is available online, as well as Shot Caught a Soul. And I'm so proud to say that Shot Caught a Soul um, has been selected for film festivals. Yes, believe it or not, in my little Zoom stage reading of Shot Caught a Soul about a black teenager who haunts the white officer who shot him. Yes, I had to do something with all that I had inside of me, and so I wrote a play about it. All these things are available on the Internet as we um, move forward from our lockdown into this brave new world. I don't know if it's post-pandemic. I guess it's like post-racial. You'll never know. <laughs> then you'll find yourself in the midst of something else and realize that <laughs> we're never post anything, are we? But I want to say this to you, my listeners. Thank you, Michael G., for all you do. And I thank you, my listeners. Become a BAI buddy and tell them you want to support Law of the Land. Um, all the great programs here on BAI are, are here for you. But Law of the Land is something that I do specially for you. And I hope you can support it with being a BAI buddy with a pledge of any amount. And, of course, that WBAI mug so we can have our tea, coffee, or whatever beverage together. I'll see you, dear friends. on the radio.